welcome to the Redeemer Central podcast. Redeemer Central is a church community in Belfast seeking to practice the way of Jesus and work for the peace and good of our city. For more information, please visit RedeemerCentral.com. So today we've got another um, special guest with us. Um, uh, last week, um, we obviously had Richard Laffern, who's a NHS psychiatrist with us. And just to speak to that a little moment, some people have been asking about the podcast of that, and it is coming, so please do bear with us. And sorry for the delay on that, um, but that was looking at faith and mental health. And uh, and this week, I'm pleased just to introduce a, another good friend of ours in Redeemer, uh, Johnny Clark. He was going to kind of tell us about, about him in a moment, but could we just put our hands together to welcome Johnny this morning? Thank you. Um, so, uh, when, when I was... Uh, we met quite a few years ago, to be honest, and I've been quite, I really appreci- appreciative of Johnny's work, and we're going to kind of get into that in a moment. We're going to look at what it means to be a peace builder, peacemaker, and just get to know Johnny a bit and his work through Corey Mila and some of his work to this point. Um, but when I was putting together um, Sundays a few months ago, I guess, we were, we were obviously in that intro series, What Kind of Church? And then we had the Practicing the Way series coming up and there was a few Sundays in between. We thought, let's just take a breather and have a little, a few standalone um, Sundays to just hit a few things that we think are important. And last week, it kind of feels a little bit random perhaps to go from three weeks ago we were speaking about generosity mm. to then last week speaking about mental health and then this week speaking about peacemaking um but without being too tedious i actually do think they're connected <laughs> in in so many ways we're talking about the myth of scarcity mm. uh, two weeks ago when we were talking about generosity and the myth of abundance or the story of abundance and the myth of scarcity which really undermines or underpins i think a lot of the way society organizes and the competition over limited resources, if that's your mindset. Um, but it also informs our mental health too and how we live our personal lives. And I think one of the ways I've been thinking about framing this is last week, I suppose we were considering how our faith relates to our inner peace and contentment. And now we're going to look at how faith might relate to our to, to peace in this world and, our, mm-hmm. and how we may be agents of peace. I think they're really connected and uh, the, the connection between being a contemplative rooted person and being an activist is actually pretty much two sides mm. of the same coin and so um it wasn't planned that way but here we go mm. that's it mm. and the two weeks are kind of connecting a little bit um johnny i, I got to know as i say i got to know you a few few years ago i'd love to just hear a little bit about you tell everyone here um a little bit about you you know if you've got family here with you this morning about um where you oh, what yeah. you're doing now and then we yeah, can dive yeah. into kind of your upbringing after that great just magic thing working in my <laughs> so a little yep. bit of feedback there yeah. um, good it's really good to be here um, with you all um, and uh, yeah so about me let me do a two minute uh, history of me um, when I was seven years and 11 months old my parents um, stepped with me and my three older siblings onto an airplane and left New Zealand and we came to England for a year and a half, and then we moved here in August 1984. So I've actually lived here for 40 years, nearly 39 years. Um, my accent got lost along the way somewhere, um, and people still wonder, did I get off the plane last week, you know? Um, so, uh, 
So that was, that was my history. My parents came as missionaries. They, most people in 1984 were leaving Northern Ireland, um, going to places like New Zealand. Um, my parents yeah, had a very deep faith and felt this when God called Abraham and, or Abram in Genesis 12 to leave his father's house and go to the land that they will call you. They felt that was God's call on them. So they put their house up for sale, ultimately, um, and, and we ended up moving here in the middle of the Troubles. So I grew up here with, in generally a kind of a Protestant space, um, but my parents, because, partly because we were New Zealanders, uh, we, they were part of an international mission agency called YWAM. Um, they didn't see the barriers that we sometimes do when we grow up here. It was more natural for them just to invite Patty McGlinchey to come and stay at their house or, you know, a guy who had been in the Red Hand Commandos to come and live with them for a few months or a guy who was in the INLA to come and, you know, go on holiday with us. You know, it was kind of quite normal. It, it, didn't, it didn't phase them. And for most of us, if we grew up in this society, those kind of things were un... You just wouldn't have met a lot of those people, either because you were not part of that socioeconomic area of kind of working-class paramilitaries, or, you, or you, if you're from a Protestant background, didn't meet Catholics. So I grew up in an environment which was a little bit unusual, I suppose, and that I was just meeting all different sides, and very clearly hearing that reconciliation was at the heart of what it meant to follow Jesus. Um, long story short, in 95, it's funny, it parallels with, with last night, uh, I was in, in South Africa for a year, South Africa's first year of being a democratic country, and in June, I enjoyed the World Cup and enjoyed uh, the All Blacks and Jonah Lomu triumphantly making its way to the final, and everyone knew we were going to win. And of course, God came along and food poisoned the All Blacks, and, uh, <laughs> and we ended up miraculously losing to South Africa, which is the only way we could have lost. And uh, <laughs> much like last night, you know, um, uh, we needed the hand of God to send off one of our players, you know, and uh, so um, I think God lifted up his arm a wee bit as he went in for that tackle, you know. <laughs> Um, We're going to pray for Johnny after today, <laughs> by the way. So if you want to gather at the front at the end, we'll lay hands on him. And... Real, real quick, just to, I suppose during that year, I had a real commitment and a call to peacemaking and a sense that that was at the heart of what it meant to, be a, to follow Jesus. But I also kind of wanted to be, wanted to follow Jesus. I wanted to, and the only way I kind of knew that was this organization called YWAM. So I kind of finished my history degree at Queen's and then got involved in a little town called Bambridge, you know, which I sometimes used to joke, can anything good come out of Bambridge? Or, you know, it was kind of like, why do you come to Bambridge? But grew to really love that town for a couple of years. And then I moved up to the Lower Shankle in 2002, as you did, you know, when Johnny Adair was still hanging around. And we worked with a youth project. Johnny Adair's kids came to that a few times. And we started to develop a kind of a, a YWAM community across the Shankle and the Falls. We ended up with about 10 different rented houses up and down the roads, Springfield Road, Shankle, Falls, Ballycillan. And we started to offer scholarships to young people from areas of conflict. So South Africans, Palestinians, uh, Israelis from, from northern Israel, from Arab backgrounds, Lebanese, and then Rwandans, Burundians, Sri Lankans, lots of people. They were great days. In 2010, uh, we, our, my old organization, YWAM, was given the old Christian Renewal Center in Ross Trevor, and we moved down, and there's some of the guys from there now, uh, called Onkuin, and we named it Onkuin, which is Irish for harbor, and we started doing the same thing there, trying to establish a kind of a modern, 
I mean, I don't think we ever got anything close to a modern monastic community. It sounds so lovely, but we were, you know, most of what we do is, is often failing. I had a friend who used to call it underperforming our way to reality, you know, like, we go, we're going to be a new monastic community. Well, you know, we were a bunch of people who lived together in Fort all the time and did some great stuff, you know. Um, anyway, in, theologically, I've always been on the more progressive end, and, and our work in, in YWAM was always, you know, if you want to give it a label, was quite progressive. Um, I, hate, I really hate labels and don't particularly like that word, but it, if that helps you understand where we were. Um, and then, in, in very much, we were becoming a much more inclusive space for people, particularly uh, around the era of LGBTQ+. And uh, after a while, my wife and I just felt actually we probably need a bit of space from this big international organization that doesn't really represent all of who we are in, in some ways, and to find a space that fits us a bit better. And so we moved back to Belfast, um, and we're delighted to be here, my three boys, and uh, Jen and we live on the Ormo Road and uh, and we got a, I got a job with Carmila as their uh, program manager for public theology so that's my technical role and one of which one of the things I do with that is run an event on the second Tuesday of the month called Borderlands I'd be remiss I wouldn't get paid if I don't like say that you know <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah it's so. brilliant and it's a real welcome to Jen and, and the boys are all here are they um, mm -hmm. yeah really warm welcome to you at the back. Please do grab a conversation with these guys after. I've really appreciated Johnny's work, probably from a little bit of a distance. Then we've got to know each other a little bit over the last few years. And um, we hosted um, a documentary that you made. Uh, we did a screening here, I remember, one time, where you had yeah. some, um, I think you had someone who had been bereaved in the mm. Troubles, and you also had some yeah. former members of the paramilitaries actually sitting in this very spot mm. after the mm. film talking about that. And I've just been really appreciative of Johnny's uh, you've covered a lot of ground there in about yeah, yeah, two, yeah, two, yeah, three yeah, minutes. Yeah. You know, but uh, your journey, mm. um, especially in the religious context of Northern Ireland, which has been very, I think, probably focused on um, in individual faith, um, where you you've really had a passion and maybe a sense of calling to mm. how does the gospel really translate mm. into society and how does it make a difference mm. and what does it mean to see the kingdom mm. of of God come. Um, what, what what was there a moment in your journey? You were kind of talking about you were raised evangelical. Would that be fair to say that line, yeah. that, that label fits? Yeah, yeah. And then, what, what was there one moment or a series mm. of moments that you just begun to go on that journey towards um, broader more faith. of a broader faith, or and particularly the a sense of calling the peace and reconciliation mm. work itself? Yeah. So, um, I would say. I, I don't know your backgrounds, but I would say probably a lot of you in this, in this space might have grown up in some kind of Christian space and could well have been some kind of evangelical space. I, I never called it evangelical. It's funny, we use that word so much more in some ways than we did when, in the 90s or 80s because we just assumed we all <coughs> were like each other, you know. Um, we live in lots of little bubbles and we kind of assume everyone's like us, you know. But my parents were, were brilliant, broad people. I, I like to look at three things. Um, often we want to clarify what's our belief. What do we believe? That's the important thing is good evangelical belief. What's our belief? What's the orthodox belief? Right belief. Orthodox means right belief. And then as I journeyed, I began to kind of, I remember used to go to CFC in East Belfast. A couple of people were there, you know, and uh, a guy called Tony Campolo came to speak. He was this big American Baptist preacher, but he was passionate about working with the poor. 
I had never heard a preacher in all my years of going to church twice a week at least tell, tell me that the that fundamental part of following Jesus was to love the poor. I had kind of overlooked this little passage that says, as you've done it unto the least of these, the poorest, the people that are homeless, in prison, don't have any clothes, as you've done it unto them, you've done it unto me. And if, if you haven't looked after them, I'll probably treat you in the same way. <laughs> you know, and, and Tony Campolo was this firebrand, pre- well, not firebrand, but he was, he was hilarious. But he, I think a generation of people heard him speak a number of times in those years, mid-90s, and were like, we don't just have to believe the right thing. We actually have to do the right thing, which, which is orthopraxy, having the right practice, you know, doing, doing the life of Christianity, of following Jesus. I would have to say, as I began to go down that journey, though, I also found lots of people who were doing good stuff but were quite manipulative, quite sectarian in their own different ways, quite judgmental. And I realized, gosh, we can do the right stuff, but really be quite rotten still, you know? I think Henry Now and, and others have said something along the lines of, there's no peace in the world until there's peace in the heart. And until we get that contemplative stuff right, that kind of who we are with God, often our work out there becomes quite broken. So there's orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and then some have said a next one could be orthopathy, which is pathos is the heart, a right-heartedness. And when I look at my parents, I grew up evangelical. I believed the Bible, the world was created in seven days, literal 24-hour periods about 30,000 years ago. I'd never passed a science exam in my life, so I didn't realize how kind of contradictory that was to most of science. I believed that evolution was some kind of myth from, this, from hell, you know. I've I read end times books about the state of Israel and kind of you know, and I believed, you know, I believed all the stuff that maybe many of us did. So I had these kind of beliefs. But as I kind of, and as I look back at my parents' life, I realized they believed a lot of things that I now wouldn't believe. I don't believe the world was created 30,000 years ago. You know, I don't believe it was, even the Bible doesn't necessarily say it was seven 24-hour periods, you know. Um, you know, so the, the understanding the, the creation accounts in Genesis is more about like understanding poetry, you know. And so I realized that actually my parents may not have believed all the things I did, but they had really good hearts. There was a good heartedness in them that meant they did the right stuff. They didn't always believe the same exact things. And so I have a lot of grace for people in the, in the Christian world who are journeying along trying to figure out how do you hold the text the Bible, with the reality of a world that seems to be changing very quickly, hmm. and the fact that we might be wrong. You know, when, you know, that thing, I might be wrong, was not a phrase that I would have heard preached about now. You know, when I went to church when I was young, the preacher, the, he had to be more, the more sure he was of, of what he was saying, the better, you know? And if he came out and goes, well, I'm not too sure about that, he'd be like, what do we listen to this guy for, you know? Hmm. So he had to be sure. And I suppose, as, as I look back, I realize he didn't know everything. And actually, a lot of the things the preacher that I listen to, he doesn't even believe half of that stuff now, you know? Like, uh, and, and so, you know, it's, the belief thing can be over. <laughs> we can really overstate that. And I think a community of people like this that is rooted around how do we base ourselves around the life of Jesus, that Jesus ultimately is the, what God has to say. Hmm. If we want to know what the Bible's about, we look to Jesus. Um, and is there a moment that kind of moved me along? There wasn't really a moment. Mm. It was probably late 90s. I was university. 
sharing a house with a couple of guys you might know, Pete Rollins, Gareth Higgins. We shared a house together. Pete's become this kind of well-known philosopher around the world and the emerging church and stuff. Gareth ended up moving to America, started the Wild Goose Festival, among other things. And, and hanging out with those guys, really kind of my faith became a lot broader. I started to doubt some core beliefs. If, if God told us to forgive, Jesus told us to forgive, he didn't say, before you can forgive, you need to go and sacrifice someone. Or, you know, he just said, forgive, 70 times 7. Forgive, forgive, forgive. If Jesus wanted us to do that, why did he need to have this whole sacrificial... And so there's a doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. We won't go into that. But I really... That's for later. I began to question a lot of those real core things. What is the gospel? The gospel was about God loved us, but we were sinners, so he had to send us to eternal conscious torment. And the only way he could get us out of that is by killing his son. You know, he couldn't just forgive us. He had to kill someone in order to forgive us. I began to question that. Is that really what the Bible has to say? And maybe, actually, Jesus was saying, was coming not to save us from God. He was coming to show us God. He was not trying to change God's mind about us. Jesus was coming to change our mind about God. We, throughout human history, people have viewed God as this impersonal deity on a throne who's really holy and he's old and he's got a big white beard and he kind of doesn't like you very much, you know. But Jesus is nice and God sends Jesus because he can't really handle us. I began to change and believe actually Jesus came to show us that God actually loves us. The story of the prodigal son of a father that puts his arms mm. wide open to someone who has turned his back on them, to, it has slandered him, has stabbed him in the back. The father that opens his arms to that person is what God is like. It wasn't just a fairy tale. When Jesus comes and says, I love all of you, you're all included. It's not just Israel, it's not just the Jews, it's not just men, you're all included. That, that maybe Jesus wasn't kind of showing us, a, a, you know, he's some weird, he was showing us what God is like. That is what God is like. That's what our faith is like. It's open, it's embracing, it's forgiving, it's loving, it's welcoming, it's gracious. That's what it's all about. And so I guess late 90s, I could say a whole lot about that. I mean, I went through a bit of a crisis of faith, if we're going to go there in that. Um, hmm. For a few years, I really doubted the existence of God, and yet I was working as a missionary, leading worship. And as this cognitive dissonance is where you're doing stuff that's different from what you believe. And it's not that I didn't believe in God, I was just really struggling I, the, the faith of my youth, I was like, is God really there? I was like, um, I've given my life to God. I, all my friends have got jobs and got money, and I'm penniless missionary, you know? What the heck am I doing? Um, and I went through this season of doubt. At, at the, to Long story short, I'm really going off on tennis no, here, good. you know? But... Um, I, I came to a point where I go, okay, I can't do this anymore. I have to just decide that either God has to come and show himself to me in a supernatural way, that he really is real, or I'm going to have to just officially become an atheist and not believe in God anymore. And so I was staying at my parents in, in north of London, and I was flying to Belfast the next day. So I went to bed that night and said, God, I, I just can't do that. I can't pretend to be a Christian. I can't go back to leading worship and speaking about God when I'm really internally struggling with that reality. And um, so I said, God, tonight I'm going to go to bed. You've got to show yourself in a miraculous dream. I have to see you. I have to know that you're really there. And if you're not, I'm going to have to stop believing and I'm going to have to become an atheist. 
So I woke up the next day and, surprise, surprise, didn't have a dream. Now, maybe I did. I never remember my dream, so maybe I had an incredible dream and just never remembered it, you know? Um, God would be like, God, I can, what can you do with this guy? I gave him a dream and he didn't remember it. But um, so I woke up, didn't have a dream. So I go down, make a cup of coffee and cereal and go, I guess I'm, I'm going to have to be an atheist now. So I sit down at the kitchen at the table in my parents' living room. I was on my own. And I wasn't a very good atheist because I hadn't been doing it very long. So I picked up my Dietrich Bonhoeffer book that I was reading <laughs> called The Cost of Discipleship. And, um, and, I was, and I started to read that. So I started to read uh, and going, and, and it said, you know, he said something like this. Um, uh, it was a chapter after the Cheap Grace chapter. Uh, he said, you know, people go to lie in their beds at night wanting God to show up to them in dreams. And he never will do that. They need to get off their beds and go out and do what I called them to do. And only in the doing will belief really come. Mm. Belief isn't some kind of thing that just lives in a vacuum. It comes as we practice the way of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I go, oh, gosh, that kind of seems like it was read just for me. And so I guess I'll just hold off on the atheism thing. You know, I'll convert back to Christianity. So it's the world's shortest atheist, you know, like about, <laughs> about an hour and 23 minutes. Um, so, but, but I remember I flew back to Belfast, got bus into town, and walked up Botanic Avenue to my house. And I remember passing a homeless guy, and, um, and, I, and these words in my head, they need to get off their bed and do what I've called them to do. And I'm remembering the likes of Tony Campolo saying, love the poor, and I'm seeing this guy, he's homeless. Um, and I think, oh, I guess I need to go and talk to him, you know? And so I remember sitting down with this guy called Danny, I still remember his name was Danny, and... and Ended up sitting with him for about three hours. We got food. Um, we talked and we talked. And he told me of horrendous stories of abuse and sometimes how Christians had failed him. And I just was trying to be there for him and all this. I remember afterwards, you know, I didn't, he was going to sleep in a hostel. I said goodnight and walked home. And I remember as I walked home, for the first time in probably five years, I felt like I believed in God, you know? Um, and it's not like everything was fixed. I never had a doubt anymore. Doubt has is, is very much become a part of my life since that, but in a, in a positive way, you know, in a sense of what's God saying now? I don't know. Faith is not the opposite of doubt. Faith is often very close to doubt. Mm. And so that was, a, that was a big turning point in me, kind of going through periods of dark night of the soul, coming back to kind of a, a deeper faith that now you days you call that deconstruction, you know, sure. probably that's what I was doing, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a book, um, just to just drop that word in the very, very, very end, thanks for sharing that, um, deconstruction, but I think there's probably many people in this room that kind of relate to kind of all or part of just what you've shared, just basically, I suppose, in the sense that we're all wrestling with our faith and our faith does change and evolve, our understanding of God changes and evolves. Um, um, and yeah, here we've we've kind of really gravitated toward the idea that you know, um, this, you know, it is in the face of Christ that we see God and what He is like, that we see the divine, and that Jesus came to fully reveal God. And um, I was in the home of someone recently for dinner, and they shared that uh, the amount of things that they're sure about is much less, but the things that they are sure about, the few things they like are double down on, you know, that we really are like passionate about, about Jesus. Um, so thank you for being so honest. Um, I just want to put it out there. There's going to be hopefully a short time for a couple of questions at the end. So if you do want to have any questions to ask Johnny, um, you can be thinking about those. Um, Johnny spoke there, you spoke there a lot about like theology and understanding 
and then a little bit about actually practicing your faith. Um, I'm really convinced that a little bit like what Richard said last week, that good ideas about God can lead to flourishing and bad ideas about God can lead to death, really, ultimately. Um, or another way to put that, I really believe, is the bad theology kills. And so I really do, although we hold what we know loosely and we, uh, at the same time, there are, there are some bad ideas about God that really do lead to some of the, some of the suffering in our own lives or the shame that we carry or even some of the suffering in this world. Um, I'm going to try to pivot somehow to like, you know, public theology now. What's the, what is that, your practice of that from, we've obviously kind of set a bit of a foundation of kind of your, how your faith has evolved and how that is informing your practice now, but what is what is your role now in Corimila and what is public yeah. theology? How does that and you know yeah. what does that look like so, in the public um, square? If I can try to answer that, because um, uh, um, you know I I talk to a lot of people since I've been working at Corimila and it's like this is our program manager for sectarianism, marginalization, legacies of conflict, and this is public theology, and everyone goes, what's that? You know, like. They get the kind of marginalization, yeah, sectarianism, yeah, legacy of public theology. Mm. I remember I met, uh, it was down at an event in Dublin, it was like Simon Coveney was there when he was the um, Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs for the Irish government, you know, and he, he, same thing happened, he met all these people, Johnny, public theology, kind of this look of blankness goes over him. And then he goes, you know, what's that? And I go, oh, crap, now how, how do I explain this? To, you know, so I've actually found that a repetitive thing, trying to explain it in a way. Yeah. People sometimes who have no faith whatsoever, why would an organization like Karimila is trying to do peace building? What, what, what is this kind of religious sounding term? Um, I suppose our theology can affect lots of things. Um, we have theologies of where we go when we die. When I was growing up, that was probably pretty much if I think of percentages term, that was about 71%, 75, 80, 90% of really what I really thought about being a Christian was. It was where you go when you die. You know, as you get older, you realize the whole book of Acts, they never once mentioned heaven or hell, which is amazing. That's the big evangelist book, and they don't mention once. Like, you choose this day whom you will serve, you know? Yeah. So... Often our theology is related to things that have got nothing to do with the cost of living, nothing to do with Brexit, nothing to do with living in a divided society, nothing to do with asylum seekers and immigration, migration laws and sending people to Rwanda. Our theology has often got really very little to say with that. It's got nothing to say about wars in Gaza, wars in Israel. You know, it's got nothing to do with div division of society. It's got nothing to do with climate change. That's all kind of non-spiritual stuff. We want to deal with where we go when we die. You know, we want to go with what is the Bible literally true. And, and we often spend a lot of time theologically talking about stuff that has very little to do with what's on people's kitchen tables, you know, or not, or not on their tables. Public theology is about what is what we believe about God got to do with the public events, the pub, things that affect all of us as a society. That's what it should be about. So my predecessor, Glenn Jordan, at Corey Miller, who tragically passed away uh, very suddenly, uh, who's an amazing guy and, and a brilliant theologian, shortly before he, book, shortly before he died, he wrote a book uh, with, my, with my good friend, Padre Tuma called uh, Borders and Belonging. In the wake of Brexit, it was looking at what does 
the, what, what is it, how do we understand identity, belonging, borders in a time of Brexit? And they looked at it through the lens of the book of Ruth. Ruth being a Moabite. Um, if you read the Bible, you'll find things about how God told Moses, look, you can forgive is- Egyptians, even though Egyptians like imp- you know, enslaved the Israelites in the, in the narrative of the Old Testament for centuries, you can forgive them after about three generations and an Egyptian could become a member of the house of God. You know? But the Moabites can never be accepted into the people of God. They are not allowed. They are, they are, they are absolutely un... You can't welcome. They are the worst. And you know the worst of the Moabites? Not just Moabites, it's female Moabites. They're going to de- deceive your young men and going to take them away from the faith and they're the worst. <laughs> so if you meet a female Moabite, anyone, you know, just look out for them. That was what was taught in the early books of, of the Bible. And so then the book of Ruth comes along, written at a similar time as Ezra and Nehemiah were written, which is when the people were coming back to the land after being in exile. And Ezra and Nehemiah, and both of them kind of end with this kind of name and shame. These are some of the Israelites that married Moabites, and they got... told, either you're here and you have to send your wife and children away, or you have to leave with them. And there's a list of the people that married Moabite, like naming and shaming. Some would think the book of Ruth was written almost as a prophetic challenge to Ezra and Nehemiah. Not that we can't learn from Ezra and Nehemiah, but actually Ezra and Nehemiah were very quite xenophobic books. It was kind of we need to be Israel, we need to be the Jews, we need to come back to the land, and we need to send away the foreigners. The book of Ruth is saying, um, so there was a famine in the land. Lots of Jewish people had to flee, and someone called Naomi went to uh, Moab, and um, her husband died, and she was left with a couple of sons, and they married Moabite women. Woo! The scary Moabite women. Um, And and ultimately, then her her sons die, and she's left with these two Moabite women daughters-in-law, living in a foreign land. That's the book of Ruth. And, and it's a story of Ruth becoming this beautifully redemptive enemy, other person, who says, where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. And, and Ruth the Moabite becomes this redemptive Moabite woman, showing the heart of God that maybe God always wanted to include everyone. That these little lines in the Old Testament said, keep away the Moabites wasn't really a picture of the heart of God. It was a picture of what God's people thought at that particular time. So we need to understand the Old Testament is this progressive journey of a people trying to figure out who they are and who God is. If you take one verse where it says, keep away the Moabites, and build a whole theology around that, you're going to come up with a really mixed up, messed up, anti-xenophobic you know, theology. But the book of Ruth goes, actually, maybe everyone's welcome. Even the worst people are maybe welcome. And maybe God can use them to save us, you know? Maybe God could use, you, could, could use the, the worst person you could imagine to save you. Maybe God could, ima- you could use the, the, the person you regard as the, the most othered person in your life. They could be used to, to save you. That's the, the story of, of Moab, you know? Um, and so it challenges xenophobia. Uh, and encourages xenophilia, the, the hospitality, the love of strangers. Um, I don't know what I, does that answer your question? I mean, that's great. No, the, yeah, the, yeah. That was my predecessor. Yeah. <laughs> Public theology kind of engaging with yeah. um, the stuff of yeah. everyday life, really. 
um, not necessarily the afterlife, but what's on our tables, what's in our policies and our laws, um, in our society, um, even in our hearts, those attitudes towards the other. Yeah. Um, a few years ago, we actually taught on the book of Ruth, actually, and we used mm. Glenn and Podrick's book as a, as, a, as a resource for that. Um, so I would really highly recommend that book, actually. It's called Borders, Borders and Belonging. If you want to dive into the book of Ruth, um, it is um, beautiful and wonderful to see that the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, particularly the Old Testament prophets, but also books like Ruth are prophetic, even in can speak right into the issues of today. Um, I mentioned a few um, at, the, at the beginning, a little bit about a documentary that you made called Guardians of the Flame. Yeah. And you've got a podcast called Guardians yeah. of the Flame as well, which kind of interviews peacemakers yeah. and looks at yeah. the work of that. So do check those out. Um, but we were talking actually just behind, because we wanted just to do f- maybe five, mm-hmm. five minutes no more. I know it's very hard, but I think maybe just um, because there's a lot of questions and wondering just about all that is going on on our news screens at the moment in Israel and Gaza. And um, it was actually watching a particular documentary mm. that inspired about mm. Israel and Palestine mm. that inspired you to make your documentary about Ireland. Um, and so I suppose. Um, I don't know how you want to answer that, but maybe just speak to maybe what you've learned even um, yeah. in making that documentary and, sp- yeah. and just speak to um, that resource about how yes. people can educate themselves about Israel and Palestine and, and why we should, and also why we should care. Mm. Um, if you look at the back of those books, um, the books, those Bibles on your, on your tables, there's a map of this region. And so the question I'm kind of, why I'm asking Johnny about this is like, why should, why should we care? What, why is it important? Because I believe it's really important. Mm. And I visited that land about 11 months ago, mm. and it's really on my heart. I'm really kind of heartbroken about it all. Mm. Um, but it, it kind of, there's some parallels to, mm. to Ireland, any yeah. kind of work that needs, there's, there's intractable conflict and it needs like the work of peacemakers. Mm. Um, what kind of, do you want to speak, frame yeah, that conflict yeah. a little bit and then maybe yeah. speak to what, pe- what maybe about peacemaking yeah. um, looks like? Yeah. There. So, yeah, there's a lot, and man, we could write books and PhDs about, about all of those questions. Really quickly, um, I, the, the, the name Guardians of the Flame comes from this line in a book by the former chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, um, in a book called The Dignity of Difference. And he said, you know, after the Enlightenment, people thought religion was going to die out. You know, now we're so clever, we know everything. Uh, you know, we don't have any need for God. And he goes, but then what happened is we still have massive faith. There's churches everywhere, mosques, you know, reli- religion permeates all of our societies. They were wrong because religion is, is fire. And like fire, it warms, but it also burns. And we are the guardians of the flame. Um, and so I had a desire to make a film that would look at redemptive stories um, of people whose faith had, had informed them, sometimes their faith and sometimes their faith in humanity, to, to become peace builders, forgivers, lovers, you know, bridge builders, peacemakers. Um, originally, I thought, let's make one film about 10 different conflicts. And I worked with a friend, Josh Eves, in, in England. And he goes, I think that's not a very good idea. <laughs> that would be the world's longest documentary, you know? Um, so let's focus on Northern Ireland. So we focused on Northern Ireland. We interviewed three victims of the Troubles. Um, Eugene Reevy, whose three brothers were sitting in, in White Cross, the village of White Cross in South Armagh, watching 
Celebrity Squares in 1976 when members of the Glen Ann gang came in and, and brutally killed them. Um, afterwards, the next day, the Kings Mill massacre happened just a, miles, a couple of miles down the road. Um, and, you know, it's one of these horrific kind of periods in our history where, where just innocent people were brutally killed. We interviewed Eugene Reevy, whose mother on the night that her, her sons were killed lit a candle as she did as a devout Catholic for auntie such and such and uncle such and such and the grandmother and the grandfather and this person who's sick and this person. And this candle, the last candle, is for the men who killed my three sons, you know. And she lit that candle <clears throat> for them every day for the rest of her life, um, which is just beautiful, just beautiful. What, what could be more beautiful than that? Um, she was lighting a candle to remember them, light it, knowing that those men that pulled the trigger were probably told to do it by someone else who was sitting in a nice, comfortable office and turns out maybe in Whitehall or whatever, you know. Um, the Glen Ann gang was this horrific collusive of kind of a bunch of injustice. So another one, Beryl Quigley, whose husband was killed by the IRA. And the third one was Alan McBride. Some of you might have heard Alan on radio sometimes. His wife was killed in the Shango bomb. And, 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 we, and we talked to lots of people. So that's, that's a, you can find that Guardians of the Flame. <laughs> guardiansofflame.org or on YouTube, etc. And there's a whole bunch of podcasts. And so that, 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 that documentary, I suppose, illustrated, I guess, the importance of faith in contributing to a yeah. society that's trying to move forward. Yeah. Individually, people were finding resource within yeah. their faith, yeah. Christian faith, to forgive, yeah. to forgive their... So. And I suppose to emphasize that was because we had also seen the opposite of where faith had been so... Malevolent, malevolently used to make conflicts worse. Um, so, um, and, and no clearer way, no better, more obvious way, place to see that is in Israel-Palestine. There's a fascinating book written by a, a, a rabbi um, called Goran Gershenberg, who my wife Jen and I met in 2003, called The End of Days, Goran Gershenberg. Um, and it's, it looks at Islam, Judaism, Christianity, extremist, fundamentalist um, streams within all three religions that particularly focus on the end of days and why Jerusalem and the, particularly the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Temple Mount are this epicenter of the, those three kind of faiths and how they, those three fundamentalist streams within those three big faiths have been deeply corrosive and, and horrific and, and really spurred on a lot of our faith. A lot of Congress that is approving billions and billions of dollars in, in arms sales to Israel every year, a lot of the Congress men who, and women, but mainly men, who approve that are, are doing it believing that God is on their side, God is on Israel's side, God is on the Jews' side. Um, so they need as much money and weapons as they can. And they get that by a reading of Scripture. So, um, and so, yes, Religion is fire, and it burns, and it can really burn. And Israel-Palestine, it can supremely burn. Jen and I went there for the first time in 2003, right after we were married. We're the romantic type, you know. We, we like to go to kind of conflict zones on our, you know, it wasn't exactly our honeymoon. But it was when they were building the separation wall. And, and I remember going into East Jerusalem and seeing the, the building of this wall at one point, and, and, and Palestinian women carrying, I'm going to, this is empty carrying um, shopping bags over the rubble 
and, and as the war, and they go, soon this will be a war, and these women won't be able to get to the shops, the hospital that's there, the school, any family members on this side, they'll be cut off. Um, and so we were watching kind of history getting made. Um, and uh, it was very sad. I remember that day one of our group went and bought a bag of um, spray paint, and we went and spray painted the, the new wall. Um, now everyone spray paints it, you know. Um, we weren't the first, but, you know. But I remember what I sprinted was, look at Northern Ireland, walls don't work. Because at the time, I was living on the Shanko Road, very, like a stone's throw from um, Cooper Way and the, and the wall that separated the lower Shanko from the lower falls. Walls are not good, you know. Um, and so much in it. I, my theology on Israel-Palestine massively changed. There's lots of reasons for it, and I encourage you to really dig in, and maybe we can post some links yep. to places. And the documentary, With God on Our Side, produced by Porter Speakman. You can, it's now on YouTube. We can also post that link. If you go to my Instagram or, or probably Facebook or Twitter, it's there. Um, uh, looking, and some of those resources will help you to see maybe God's heart is bigger than just for one people. Maybe God loves all the people. When we were there in 2003, not only did we see the, the building of this wall that was literally tearing apart families, we saw, I remember one day we went to a village and, and we could see on the side of, it was very obvious where it was, it's a village, and then there's this patch of land, fertile land around it. And this man came out to us and the, the wall was being built on our right. And he goes, soon there will be a wall, who's a Palestinian man, this wall will be built that separates this village from this land. This land, our village have cultivated that land for centuries. Like this is our land, this is our village, this, this is where we get our, our money from, our livelihood. These, these are my cattle, these are my sheep or whatever. I can't remember what they grew there, or what kind of farm. And the wall will separate us. And then he looked at us. We we're a group of about 15 people. And I'm tired of you people coming from the West. You come and see what's happening. And then you leave and you forget about us. Don't forget about us. And he was pointing his finger, he was vociferous. He wasn't really being accusational, but he was, it was desperation. He was like, don't forget about us. They are building this wall. We will not have land. We will not, you know, they will they, they'll have control over how much water we can have. Life is, you know, it's so hard for Palestinians. I met so many Palestinian Christians on that trip that I didn't know existed and realized, gosh, if you read the second chapter of Acts, you kind of get this list of people in Jerusalem that received the Spirit. And what were one of the groups? Arabs. Arab-speaking people. Who, who in the second chapter of Acts, they had always been Christians in that land since the time of Jesus. And I remember when that man kind of waved his finger in our face and said, don't forget about us. Everyone forgets about us. I felt that was really God saying to me, don't forget about, not just about marginalized people, not about people in justice, but particularly Palestinian people. Don't take their side. God's bigger than sides. But don't take the side of neutrality. I think either, often we want to be, I grew up thinking you had to be on Jewish people's side. And then you kind of move into this, maybe we just need to be in the middle. Kind of, I, it's like the Harry Enfield skit. I'm neither this nor that. I'm somewhere in between, you know, and like, you know, peacemakers are meant to somehow be in the middle, but we're not to just, we are at times, you know, Desmond Tutu said, if there's a situation of injustice, there's an oppressor oppressing someone, neutrality means you have chosen the side of the oppressor, you know, 
Um, you can't be neutral in situations of injustice. That makes common sense to us, doesn't it? Like if, if we're looking at R Russia and Ukraine, it wouldn't be very con controversial for me to say, we should really look out for Ukrainians, you know, because they were just minding their own business and a superpower invaded them. It's not controversial to say, poor Ukrainians, you know, but often when it comes to Israel-Palestine, you kind of go, ah, oh, God love Palestinians, you know, like they're small people who've never had their own state, never had their own land, and you've got the biggest superpower in the world, America, funneling money, in. so the state of Israel has the fourth biggest military in the world. Hey, where does God want us to be? Just in the middle, there's no right or wrong. Yes, sometimes there is right and wrong, you know, and, and we need to be able to say it and speak it out. But I, yeah, there's so much you can say about there's, all that. There is so much we could say, particularly about... Uh, Ireland and the conflict here, particularly about Israel-Palestine, the conflict there. I guess as we kind of come to towards an end, we're kind of thinking, um, why? What, what? Again, asking that question, why is this important? And I think like that quote from from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, um, that religion, the same religion that can that can warm the heart can can burn. And I think what we see in a lot of places of conflict is that religion and faith is used to build walls and to other people and to to burn and to create hurt. Um, but also we see faith as the resource in which peace, genuine peace, um, bridge building can and justice can be pursued. Um, I visited Israel-Palestine, as I said, last November, and one Palestinian farm that I visited, Tent of Nations, um, it's been really challenged time and time and time again by the Israeli government and settlements that are moving in on that land. This is a, a bit of land that has been in that family for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But on the stone, at the, at the it's a beautiful beautiful family in a beautiful place but there's a stone at the entrance to that and it says um, we refuse to be enemies mm. and that's um, people that are tapping into the resource of their faith um, to try to advocate for another way to try to advocate for peace and I guess that's what we ultimately are trying to do as a community in a small small way here to try to be people that are educated that are thoughtful about all the problems that are in our society, but also hopeful because we have resource. Whether that resource is the book of Ruth that has a, that has a commentary on how we treat the other, whether it is the life of Christ. And we stood on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, overlooking over Galilee and where Jesus preached that famous Sermon on the Mount and said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall see the king, they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Um, and so that I suppose as an overall, um, one of the things I see in your life, Johnny, and in your work is a call for Christians to educate themselves, but to get involved in what is really our calling and vocation as Christians is to, is to be peacemakers um, and is to, um, is to stand up for those that are on the margins, those that are being oppressed. Um, and not to use our faith to burn, not to have theology that ultimately leads to, to death, not to perpetuate the myth of redemptive violence, but to actually say that the Prince of Peace is the one that we follow. We want to see shalom on earth. I guess one final question for you then is a little small community here, Donegal Street in Belfast, you know, how might we, some people here are kind of well into that journey of, of, of learning about what it means 
to be a Christian and be a peacemaker and how the gospel really connects with that. Some people here maybe have never heard this before. How, what would, you, what would your encouragement be, your hope, your, you know, your affirmation even, whatever it might be, your encouragement to us as a community? What can we do even to, to, to contribute to this society that we live in flourishing um, as Christians? Yeah, well, there's probably, obviously, that's probably what every sermon series you ever do in a, in a year is trying to figure that out, you know, so, um, but, uh, so it's a, it's a big question, but if, if just if a couple of things that come to mind. I think the reality is you all have jobs, you all have lives, you all have, not you don't all have jobs, some of you are at school, but, you know, your school, job, you know, you have a place in this world, you know, where you live, and that little place, you can do a lot in that world. I think if there's a value in God, uh, Jesus kind of commissioning his followers to go into the world and this kind of gathering of ecclesias, of communities of people, if there's a, if there's a point in, in something we could call a church or a congregation like this, it is that when we pool our resources, we can do a little bit more. So if I can go beyond just your own internal place in the world, what could you do? What could we do? Um, when I was in, in, in YWAM... Um, I was, I, we had no money. We had literally had no money. We had rented houses in the Shankle. YWAM's not a rich organization. Like, we're all, like, broke, you know? And you, I go, started off to, sorry, I shouldn't, yeah, I'm not all broke, but, you know. When I went to start stuff in the Shankle, it was like, you know, they laid hands on me and said, we commission you to go and start work in Belfast. See you later. And, um, you know, I was like, right, where's my budget? There's no budget, you know, there's nothing. I had to get to create it out of everything. We got offered a rent-free house in, in the Lower Shanko. It was brilliant. Brilliant. You know, was, that's where we started to run things. I remember people would come and go, here, do you want a deep freeze freezer? Yeah, I want that. Do you want a photocopier? Yes. I, you can't be a real Christian organization if you don't have a photocopier. The photocopier never worked, by the way. You know, it always, I refused to get rid of them, so our whole house was full of these huge kind of pieces of relics of generosity, you know, no, don't get rid of it, because the little old lady gave that to us, you know, um, anyway, so we were trying to do it, and then we, I had this, you know, we, in 95, I was in South Africa, seeing South Africa transform, it's still a very troubled nation to this day, but the dream in 95 was that this country was beginning to heal itself, and that's why God defeated the All Blacks, you know, in the World Cup, you know. Um, and, and God was really, and, and South Africa was a, a model for the world, and I, I saw in South Africa so much of what I was living in, in Northern Ireland, that we were, 95, the first ceasefire was 94, but, you know, I can't remember when the IRA started, went back to violence, so violence was, had returned to our streets. By 95, and I, I remember thinking, I'd love to get South Africans to come to Northern Ireland so they can kind of live here and tell us, you know, be a testimony. So we started to, I became friends with a guy who worked in townships, one of the most worst affected by HIV in the world, and uh, around Durban. And, and I said, you know, could, we, could some of them come and do our, our discipleship course? And he said, yes. <coughs> How many? Three, great. Yes, we'll do it. We'll give them a scholarship, you know. We didn't have any money to pay to eat, you know, let alone scholarship free South Africa. But, you know, then I went around and told everyone, look, we're going to bring South Africans to Shankill, you know, and they're going to live here. Everyone goes, oh, we'll invest in that. So we, we kind of ended up getting enough money for these guys to come. A couple of years later, five, I'd been to Israel-Palestine. We said, let's bring Palestinians to Northern Ireland as well, like, you know, and 
let's bring Lebanese. And, and, and so we started bringing these people with, with no money, but money came as they came. And I realized as we had pulled our resources kind of as, as, as that was why we this bunch of people, we could do stuff. I sometimes think there's communities like you guys could do a whole lot more. I'm not, it's not a kind of a condemnation of you guys particularly, but there's a whole lot you could do. If a bunch of broke people renting houses in the Shankill and the Falls could bring 30, 40, 45, I don't know how many we brought in those eight years we were there. If we could bring all of those people here, send them back to their societies with funds and resources and friendships and networks, many of them to this day, the first Palestinian we brought, 05, I was on a Zoom call with him two nights ago. He's now a tour guide in Bethlehem, and he was challenging a bunch of master's students in Canada to be peacemakers and to speak up for Palestinians. And I go, man, like that's kind of, I mean, he's, I don't know whether he would have been doing that anyway, but his, his life was certainly transformed by coming here. So I want to encourage you as a church, what are the visionary projects that you can begin to do that can really invest in individuals that will change their lives, particularly in areas of conflict? Um, I would really challenge that in your own personal lives, be the change you want to be in the world. You know, it, it's, change starts in the heart. You know, orthopathy is good-heartedness. You know, you can't have peace in the world unless it's peace in the heart. Do all that work, the, the work of, of coming to know Jesus and being like him and, and, uh, and, and radical generosity um, that you were talking about. Uh, do all of that stuff in your own life. But as a, com- as a community here, I really encourage you to, what are the visionary projects that are out there that you could start to go, how could we pull? And if you kind of go, well, our resources, we always think finite. We always go, look, well, we, if you pull all of our extra resources in this room, we've, we've got about 13,000 pounds, let's say. What could we do with 13,000? Well, don't do 13, like triple it, you know? Like, you know? And then just figure out how you're going to get it, you know? Like, that's kind of the way we did it. And, and, but the thing is, if, you get, if God gives you a vision, and it's a compelling vision, and it really is helping people, people will, will give to it. You know, we've spent the last 20 years doing stuff that many people who were not Christians ended up giving us money to do, or helping us to do it, because they believed in what we were doing. You know, if, if you're really doing the work of the kingdom, it often won't just look Christian. You know, it won't have to have a, a little cross on it and go, this is a Christian thing. It'll look big. The world will look at it and go, that's brilliant. You know, we'll, we'll invest in that. So have big vision in your own personal lives, but as a community and think, what are the ways that we can really affect individuals around the world? Brilliant. We've, we've definitely... Um been really uh, enjoyed listening to all you've shared this morning, Johnny, and finding out more about how you got into the work mm. that you're in and the work you're doing now. Um, I did say there'd be time for questions. Is there one or two burning questions? Put your hand up now if you've got something you'd like to ask Johnny. Yes, Kerry, go for it. I 
Yeah. Yeah, how can we as churches or this particular church speak out or somehow engage with the Israel-Gaza the Israel war, Israel-Palestinian conflict? Uh, how can we, what can we do? Um, that's a really good question. Um, uh, I, think, I think there's something about being brave, you know. Um, I can't tell you guys what you should do with regards to it. But I hear the words of that farmer saying, what are you going to do? I'm losing my land. What are you going to do? Um, I hear the words of Rami Al-Hanan, who was an Israeli, <coughs> whose daughter, Smadar, was a teenager, went for coffee in a trendy cafe in Jerusalem, and she was killed by a suicide bomber. He describes Rami the night going to the hospital with his wife, desperately, as he says, desperately hoping the finger of God will not be pointing at him. And then they came <coughs> to this body and, and saw this was their daughter. And um, Rami then said, I had a choice that day. to I could hate these people and spend the rest of my life finding ways to kill as many Palestinians or, as I could, or I could choose to find out why someone would hate me so much that he would want to blow himself up and my 15-year-old daughter. And he said, I, I chose the second one. And he became friends with other bereaved parents, became part of an organization called the Parent Circle. And... and he became a radical activist against his government. He's brave. It's not easy. If people like him can do it in the face of the deaths of their own children, if they can find humanity in their enemies, then why can't we? If they can speak out, why can't we? I think um, there's something about speaking is important, you know, um, and elected representatives do what their voters think. And, uh, you know, I think it's shocking when I look at powerful nations like the UK and America and political leaders blindly supporting one side in the conflict and, and refusing to even countenance being a moral voice of peacemaking. Um, John Paul Lederach said peacemaking is about developing this moral imagination in society. Where's the moral imagination? How could Redeemer be part of a, a, a moral, developing moral imagination in Belfast? How could we be showing a different way not just a kind of, like, let's go out on the street and wave a Palestinian flag. I was at a demonstration like that last yesterday. I love it. But, like, it's, there's got to be more than just shouting. So part of it's speaking out. Part of it's, But this is what I mean by acting. We started to give scholarships to young people. We started to give, is there projects in the Holy Land that you could invest in, that you could deliberately be focused on helping people? You know, that's, for me, that's the big thing. What is the ways that you could really deliberately get involved in helping. That's the, and why I'm, we used to talk about the opposite spirit. You know, if you're struggling with greed, oh, I'm so greedy, you know, I'm just feeling I want more and more, the myth of scarcity. Practice generosity. Practice the opposite, you know. Deliberately choose generosity, okay? So if you're trying to figure out what to do in Israel-Palestine, what is a deliberate action that you can take that is like, we are going to not give in to passivity, indifference, we're not going to give in to one-sidedness. We are going to champion peace builders in this society because Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus said the greatest commandment is love your enemy. Who's your enemy? He tells them the story of the Good Samaritan. Who are the Samaritans? The biggest enemies of the Jewish people. So loving enemies, loving kind of, that's, that's at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. So find out deliberate ways to walk in the opposite spirit to, to what society is saying. That's... I don't know if that's clear enough. You know, it's a really good question. That's something you should wrestle with. 
But don't be, don't be afraid. Fear is not a good thing. Don't go, well, I shouldn't say this because it might cause trouble. Don't give in to that. We need to speak out and speak the truth where it needs to be said. That's brilliant. It's a great place to, 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 to finish. I think the, um, I have found what you've just asked, Kerry, actually quite a challenge as well, particularly when it's, when it's come to the Israel-Palestine conflict. But many of us in this room, well, there will be a diversity of views around that particular conflict and other issues. Um, and it's, the first step is really just about trying to really educate ourselves as well. Um, and so on that conflict particularly, I will share that documentary with God on our side, which talks about what Zionism is and the underpinning theology behind that, but, um, but also a bunch of other resources on that conflict just so we can kind of learn a little bit more about it for those who are interested in learning more. Um, and then I do think probably when you get to that point of where you kind of are standing on solid ground and you kind of really do feel like you, you, you know where you stand, mm -hmm. I think it is health, healthy, and uh, though it is it takes courage to say something, you know, whether that's just in a conversation when someone throws a stereotypical comment out or um, an, an uninformed opinion. Um, I think just words and speaking out is important um, for us to do that, but I think definitely to be educated and um, first is is a great place to start. Um, so we'll share resources, particularly on that particular conflict on that. And, um, and yeah, I really appreciate your time, Johnny. I think we kind of have run out of time, but I'd love, Johnny, to um, just pray over us as a community as we come to the table. I'm going to invite uh, Matt and Fran to lead us in our final song. Um, before you do that, I just wanted to thank you, Johnny, for your time this morning, for just telling us a little bit about your story, the work you do in Corrie Mila, and some of the the encouragement and the challenge you've brought to our community here. Um, and if you want, if people want to follow you, I guess you're on social media and Guardians of the Flame podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's all social. Yeah, yeah. You can follow me on all the social media things and John Clark and, and Guardians of the Flame. Yeah, it's, they'll find it if you look. Those who seek shall find. You know. Would you be happy to, to pray? Yeah. pray a blessing over us yeah. when we stand as we come to the table um, of grace, the table of Jesus? Um, So um, just as we, as we pray, uh, just this, um, the verse that's been probably the most significant verse in the last few years is, for me is, is Hebrews 1. It said, God's spoken to us in various ways at different times through prophets and, and in, in, in the story of Israel, essentially. But in these, it says in Hebrews 1, but in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son, who is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of God's being. And so in Hebrews 1, the writer is saying, you know, the same thing as what Jesus said when he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Um, Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is what God is like. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being. And so Jesus, tonight, this morning even, we, we want to come to you as someone who included the widows and orphans included those with leprosy, included those who were caught sinning. You included judgmental Pharisees. You included tax collectors, zealots, paramilitaries. You included so many people. Um, and, and Lord, I want to bless this church to be a church that will include many, many people. 
that will have big arms. There will be a, like an arm, a church with huge arms that are wide open. A church that represents the big grace and the big, the big tent of the family of God. And a, a church that has uh, this love of enemy and love of neighbor at the heart of what they're about. That this would be a, a little community with this flame of peace here. The people come in here and meet others who are different. The beauty of diversity would be here. The beauty of the bigness of the world would be in this place. And as the university kind of starts to grow around the corner, um, we don't, I'm sure this church doesn't want to just be a place that's full of transient students, but, it, but students would be able to find their way in here and find a, a life in here that they've never found anywhere else. And that Redeemer could be a real antidote to religiosity, sectarianism, judgmentalism in our society. Redeemer could be a place that doesn't offer cheap grace, but but the real passionate pursuit of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Um, Lord, I bless this community to be that big space, big, broad, gracious, generous space that you want it to be in the heart of Belfast. I bless it in Jesus' name. Amen.